Hi there, and welcome to the Intellectual Adventure Podcast. The panel gathers today to have a bit of a free-form discussion, talking about all the things that we've got on our mind, ways that we're being introspective about what our group members here bring up today, and just how we interact on a little bit more of a random format. The importance of today's discussion can't really be highlighted enough because we don't often have unfocused discussion in today's society. We're always trying to talk about something specific, today's pressing issue, the next hot celebrity. And I feel we need to take a moment to slow down and just appreciate the randomness of other people's opinions, other people's ideas, and the creative introspection that they bring. So with that being said, let's go on an intellectual adventure. Welcome, everyone. I'm excited for the show today. Jeff, would you like to start us off today? You know, give us something random. You have an update for us on, on that rooster. Rusty is rehomed in Meadow Valley, California. He's uh, protecting all the ladies from the hawk attacks. And uh, however, he suffered a dog attack. So they renamed him Bob. He's missing his tail feathers. I can uh, see it now. Yeah, he's up there uh, behind the, um, the Meadow Valley Community Center. And uh, living a good life up there. Hey. It's snowed on right now, though. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it gets pretty cold back there. He, he'd want his feathers about now. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, it's, good to, it's good to be parted from the rooster life. And well, I'm glad I got the annex down because I had him living next to the girls in a coop alongside the coop. But it it would prevent the snow from coming off the roof of the coop and the, and the greenhouse. So I'm glad that I was able to take down that annex before the snow started. Yeah, no kidding. I know what you mean. That was my biggest worry on the whole thing. Well, your, your take on the question. What was the question again? I was well, say, we you... actually haven't posed a question yet. Matthew uh... put up one. And I have an answer to that. Uh, Matthew asked, why do we fail at creating a utopian society and what factors contribute? And the answer I have to that is that a utopian society is usually tried to be pushed by a person, usually by people who are um, psychopaths and, and they want to be in charge of everybody and everything. So everything is done, their vision of utopia is not everybody's vision of utopia. You have to come up with, utopia is a utopian society should be contributed to by everybody voluntarily, not set into a specific, this is what you must do for your utopian society. You must live in your 15-minute city and and uh, quit driving a car and and by the way you don't you you shouldn't own anything you know that's utopia well that's one guy's view of utopia you know that's not necessarily utopia you know everybody has their own vision so that's my take on that really good take there jeff from my perspective with it as well is that you know i've heard like jeff bezos or some like hot like a couple corporate or a company uh, CEO talking about like, oh, if we're going to do in space travel, I remember Jeff Bezos saying, he's like, oh, I want to create a world where it's not just one Beethoven every 50 years or so. It's a hundred of them. It's a thousand, you know, a hundred Shakespeare's. And in on paper, that sounds like a good idea. You expand the arts, you expand human understanding and literature, but you also have to then think about the average individuals that would be working within that society to be able to have, you know, interstellar space stations circling planets. What is life on that planet for an everyday average person? What are the living conditions? What is the, um, where's the food being sourced? Is that having to be imported? Is there, what kind of class disparity is there? Because we know it, we see it in today's society, even with the advancement that we have, it's not perfect and far from. And I think that's the issue with utopia is that we are, you know, we're fallible creatures. 
we're nobody's perfect. Everyone has their own individual wants and needs. And while we can come together and agree on some things, that's never always going to be the case. And so regardless of whether or not a civilization or a country has a, a high point and they're doing amazing things, there's always going to be an equal low point because nothing is going to be able to last. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, how I was going to say it relates to that is the idea of perspective directly correlates to the issues with creating utopia. But rather than that being the biggest deterrent, maybe would that be the point of embracing? We realize, okay, none of our ideas are the same for you entirely for utopia, but we should create a universal standard. Um, everyone being able to feed their children and feed themselves, have a roof over their head, that should be a universal standard. You know, the they comfort of, it's going to be bugs. It, it probably will be, and it makes sense. I mean, the biomass of bugs outweighs humans 150 to 1. Their reproductive cycle is incredibly fast. It's easy to farm. They're high in protein. As much as I hate to say it, and it's kind of weird, crush it down, make a paste. There's a lot of things you can do with it. I'm allergic. It's, I'm allergic. All to no, all I'm bugs. serious. I, I'm allergic to crustaceans, and that co- goes over into the bugs. And there's a lot of people like that. They can't do crustaceans. Oh. They can't do shellfish. I didn't think of and that. The, chit- the chitin in the in the exoskeleton of the bugs is the same as the exoskeleton of your shrimp, your crab, your lobster. Interesting. Can't do it. I did not know that. I'm sure they will find a off-brand bug for you. Nope. That's a hill I'm dying on right there. <laughs> that and the chip. Uh, Ain't taking that either. <laughs> it'd be the last. It'd be the last one. It'd be like a thousand, a thousand dollars for a steak. They'll they'll have it. It'll just be luxury items. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, stick to the gummy worms, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you know, gummy worms are made out of animal um, uh, gelatin. Yep. Yeah, pork fat or pork bones, typically. Yep. So there would be no gummy worms in your world. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Apparently so. I didn't realize. No jello. No yep, gelatin. Uh, yeah, well, no, that's actually not true. Uh, xanthan gum can also be used. Xanthan, xanthan gum, gum yeah. is not is not animal based. Uh, so there Good are job. still some some thickeners, but gelatin itself would be incredibly hard to source. I was just going to say that's a deal breaker for me for a utopian society. No gummy worms? Okay, I'm out of here. <laughs> it's time to skedaddle. Start That's my exciting. own, start a rogue state. <laughs> the gummy worm state, yeah. We have gummy worms and jello. <laughs> Island full of pigs just being harvested for jello. Hey, yeah. bananas, pigs, we're talking uh, barbecue roast right there in the ground. <laughs> The Hawaiians would be out if it was for bugs only, you know. The Hawaiians love their pigs. Yeah, I I remember going to a luau. Um, That was a very interesting experience. The the pork was delicious. I mean, to be honest, Mm -hmm. that was a very, very hearty meal. But the cooking process is very extensive. I mean... Mm-hmm. It's uh, a couple days for a full pig. Well, you know, and if I may, there's actually yeah. a point I'd like to introduce. This is a perfect segue into um, a culinary question. Where should the culinary world head in the coming years? Are there any industry wide things you'd maybe project or recommend local restaurants consider? Or is it near impossible to save the industry from itself? Like, I, I kind of, I'm lean, leaning more on how at least some of the bigger cities work. It's, it's all about the distribution. So it, it, it begs the question, how, how sustainable really are the big city service jobs like that? Well, that's a really interesting question when it comes to farming economics. Uh, it's, 
the when you talk about distribution, it comes all the way down to where we're sourcing the food from, right? So sustainability is the biggest thing, the biggest push in recent years, you know, is uh, vegetarian dishes, vegan dishes and sustainability. So COVID showed us that there's things that are incredibly important is catering to new health trends, delivery, and being able to make high volume on short staff because the service jobs are not sustainable on mass that is very we much become a service community yeah it's it's great to say manufacturing we, we need a hundred restaurants in your your local area but in reality how many of those restaurants are you using but it's just because everyone has their individual preference and everything else but like preference goes out the window when supplies become scarcity and when you start to talk about you know, dire situations you want to talk about how you sustain eight billion people in reality you know we're talking about bugs that's been practiced in a lot of high-end kitchens and like places that focus on farm to table and sustainability have already focused on how to implement crickets and cockroaches and other things into their menus. And as I said, they're incredibly high in proteins and for a lot of people, it's horrible, but for so many countries, that's already a major part of their diet. And it's just, we need something that's sustainable, you know, until, um, until, humanity reallocates resources into things that are more sustainable for a food source, then the most logical option is insects. So, and that's actually a really cool segue. Um, I'm going to let you guys touch base, but that's a cool segue into the commercialization of our society and how we could better allocate our resources as a whole. If I might uh, be able to jump in on uh, on the tail coats of that. Well, as far as sustainability goes, the, the larger contributing factor is the consolidation of power and resources where you have um, corporations, uh, like you want to go back and talk about like farm to table, that's becoming harder and harder as more corporations are buying up more and more farmland. Now you have 24 hour farms that are just, you know, industrialized uh, cultivation and it's sucking nutrients from the soil. It's not able to regrow because there's just such a demand that needs to be supplied and that people are able to, to snag on for profit. And from there, even more so is you have, with that then uh, introduction of you know preservatives and chemicals into into the food market that's easily affordable you know not only perhaps with bugs but then you also have to think about what is going into you know the food that you get from McDonald's or or from Jack the Box that's it's quick and it's easy for most people because a lot of people don't have the time or the resources to go home and be able to cook either for themselves or for their, for their families. And it's becoming increasingly harder with the, um, with supply issues and ability of bringing food to the table. So if there is a way to really kind of go into sustainability, it has to be cracking down on industrial farming and being able to transfer power back to local areas and locally sourced food it's yeah. hard it's not easy but that's the one of the main ways i see of being able to step back towards stability and more naturally sourced food yeah decentralized distribution and i think that uh, matthew had a point to yeah. add before i i just mainly was more on the lines of um talking about the uh culinary industry and such i actually recently watched a video where this um this guy did this experiment with the uber eats because he was finding that there was a lot of um questionable practices with uh some of these um uber eats companies and he actually found out he went and he ordered the same sandwich from like all these different online restaurants and what he ended up finding out was that there was like one main hub kitchen and they were making all the same food from like different 
trade, you know, categories where it's like, you know, Mexican food, Chinese, whatever. It was all being made in one kitchen. And it created this illusion of choice because you get on the website and it might, you know, there might be some unique design of marketing of like all these different burgers. But then when he ordered them all from the different menus, they were literally the exact same burger that was coming from the exact same place. So it, it became this illusion of choice. And then on top of that, the, the, the places that were making this food, he tracked down the uh, actual address where they were being sent. And it was like places like IHOP and Chili's and, you know, there, it wasn't artisan custom farm raised food. It was just the same, the same, you know, culinary industry, corporate entity making it and just to giving off the illusion of choice that it was something, a unique experience you were buying. Yeah, it's definitely something Ghost Kitchens um, is kind of an official term for something like that. Yeah, Ghost Kitchen. Thank you. Ghost Kitchen's yeah. technically something else, but that is, that is, also an example of a ghost kitchen. A uh, ghost kitchen yeah. is technically a kitchen that runs a separate menu, separate business from the kitchen of another restaurant. So either you lease space in another kitchen or you just literally lease labor from their line. It's a weird system, but it is a ghost kitchen is the correct term. It's just a, that example is a very extreme example where it's weird to source like 10 different places of food from a single ghost kitchen that's running multiple different authentic Thai food, authentic Mexican food, but they're just sourcing in ingredients and there's really nothing authentic about it. It's, but uh, yeah, yeah. Ghost kitchen is the term. It's just a, that's a, I've heard of the example. It's so strange that like, it's not even the first example of illusion of choice that I've heard. Like, there's a reel going around of this kid being like, I run a tutoring service and, you know, I run 12 websites and, you know, the first 10 are bad and they drive traffic to the other two because, you know, like, oh, this person's a bad tutor. And whether I get business on the ones that are bad tutors or whether I get business on the ones that are five star tutors, I'm the tutor no matter what. So you're just getting the illusion of choice that no matter what, it's me on the one star and the five star ratings. Yeah, that's a very clever, clever strategy right there. Super interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't really, heard Really, the issue is profits. And honestly, that really what it comes down to is that, it you know, everyone needs to profit. Corporations need to profit. You know, the dairy corporations. Like, why are there dairy corporations? There should be dairy farmers, and you should be able to go and source from a local farmer who farms this dairy. It's crazy. It's like, well, we need to add preservatives in it and everything else. Like the only time you should ever have to add preservatives to it is if someone lives way the f- out of town from the nearest dairy farmer. That would be the only time. And then like offer a delivery service where there's a price premium. We, we have the technology now. It's crazy to me that we can deliver everything in the world with one day but we moved away from the milkman who delivered you fresh milk every couple of days, even though we have better refrigeration technology and it helped moderate you. So you weren't trying to force drink four liters of milk or however for a gallon of milk for American people. Um, it, it doesn't make sense. A lot of the time I feel like I buy a gallon of milk and it sits in my fridge. I, I feel like I need to cook with two liters of it or half a gallon. And then I feel forced to drink the rest or I feel like I have to go and buy cereal. And there's this forced consumerism that is really disgusting in our society, honestly, where we could be reallocating those resources to decentralized distribution of making sure that your local farmer is supported by locals, not your local farmer is sending it overseas and it's being taxed and exported and tariffed and everything else, or he's sending it across the country. It's just, it doesn't, makes sense there are certain places you can you can't farm certainly but that's not everywhere we're treating everywhere as if you can't farm there and that's a, a 
weird concept to me. Yeah, I definitely if think it's, it's a problem. If it's arable land, it should be farmed. Yeah. And farmed sustainably with, with animals on the land, along with the crops. Um, no, I, I think a lot of the monocropping that we've been doing for decades and decades is it, it depletes the soils. It's It sets everything up for a disease um, because everything is the same. The, the banana industry was hit with this back in the uh, 40s or 50s. Um, they they had the the banana back then was the um, uh, Gros Michel banana, and they had a black cigatoka uh, bacterial infection, and it wiped out pretty much the bananas all over the place. They had to come up with a more resistant variety, which is what you have in your store now, the Cavendish. So we've gone through the monocropping nightmare before and we have not learned or we persist it, it, it it's easier to make money if you only grow one crop you it needs less time and you your equipment is tailored to that crop so yep. multi-cropping is a little more labor intensive and a little more equipment intensive but overall the the health that the, the food gives is much better quality. Yeah. If it were to go further down the line to get to that point, I'm not saying it's not possible, but in this current moment of, you know, dealing with this combination of technology, agriculture, and, you know, the, the deep, the deeper connotations to, you know, cultivation and regardless of whether or not it's to create more sustainable crops or if it's for profit, it's the there needs to be that stricter regulation of what are we putting into our food. We as individuals, you know, I think it's rather along the lines of, well, if we don't trust the either the government or the FDA to regulate a lot more of these chemicals because they could, because someone could say, Oh, it's only trace amounts in higher quantities. It increases the likelihood of causing cancer. If we don't actually want these things in it, regardless of, you know, what they are, where they're getting them from, we as individuals who are consuming these and who are living in this country should hold people to the account hold people accountable for what they're putting actually in the crops and being saying, Hey, you know, you stepping, you know, stepping up to Congress per se, or whatever local, you know, government you have and saying, Hey, this needs to change. Now we're not going to eat this anymore. But then that comes from spreading that awareness and saying, Hey, should we actually be putting this in here? Where's the research on what the, long-term effects are of these uh of what kind of agriculture we are uh cultivating because i feel that a great amount of this is all coming in within the past 10 20 years we're not we don't have hindsight yet to really kind of show us what this um this kind of industrial farming is doing to us. Well, yeah, monocrops is is gonna destroy uh, land. I mean, that's a proven fact. Um, it, that's that's absolutely destroying California. Um, that's something you and I both have seen. The almond trees. There's so much talk around that because what I I I'm gonna have to look up the statistic. Um, unless you know offhand, Jeff, how many gallons an almond tree takes? I don't know specifically gallon, but I do know that they are a high water use. They're in the same family as peaches and nectarines, except they are farmed not for the flesh around the pit. They are farmed for the pit themselves. Uh, to produce almond, uh, almond milk, it's, um, or sorry, it's 
three to four acres feet of water per year. Basically grow almond trees, but you can, you can attach that to um, peaches and nectarines as well. Yeah. It, it just adds up when they have fields and fields of just almonds and, and mm -hmm. rice fields. It, yeah, it's I mean, just it's, not sustainable. No, no, not at all. And it could be, but you, 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 you need to um, see in California that the almonds grow in specific regions better than other places. So that's why there's so many of them, say, in the northern Sacramento Valley. Um, the the challenges to growing almonds are are huge. Um, if they get a uh, you know a late frost, it kills the blossoms, and they won't get a crop at all that year. So, you know, and, and that'll affect 90% of the trees in the area. So there's, there's a lot of issues that aren't brought up to the average person because most people don't have the time or energy or interest to get into farming and what it takes to farm and, and um, pitfalls and stuff like that. So it, that's, that's one of the things with the almonds. Then to make the milk out of the almonds, then you're going to need more water for the yeah. process of plants and all that. Well, and that's what I was reading is it's 23 gallons of water to one gallon of almond milk. <clears throat> almond milk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so that's where it really gets bad. Yeah. I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean. But see, if you're, if you're, you know, a vegan, then you're not drinking cow's milk, which is perfectly natural for you. Um, I mean, not a lot of it. You don't want to be, you know, no. drinking a gallon a day unless you're a growing child but you know to to switch to almond milk your your water consumption goes up and your nutritional value goes down and a lot of the whole vegan and, and vegetarian push has been um, I think short-sighted now Benjamin you you linked this article on biosolids I'm yes so because I know when we were oh, talking about um, cultivation, monoculture for the um, and the use of like basically the soil getting sucked of its nutrients. Um, there is I was looking around and I'm like, oh, you know, I heard I've heard about biosludge. I think, Jeff, you linked it uh, uh, another article on it. Um, with this one that I was looking at, there's a specific graph in there uh, where the this and just for the listeners' view, this is from the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency. Um, yeah. Take it as you will. Uh, there is a there is a, uh, a pie chart discussing the different ways in which uh, bio sludge um, and just for the definition of bio sludge. Hey, Ben, yes. I'm going to pull it up for you. Um, oh, awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. Just give me one second here. And I'll have it right if, up. If I'm moving too, too fast, my apologies. Uh, I'm trying to both monitor from the uh, the stream and then also the, the articles. I might want to just pull up a new browser window and just present the browser window. No, I understand. This is uh, this should be fine. So, um, yeah, that's the that's the one I'm referring to. Um, on the article itself, it says biosolids are a product waste of the wastewater treatment wastewater treatment process. During water wastewater treatment, the liquids are separated from the solids. These solids are then treated physically and chemically to produce a semi-solid, nutrient-enriched product known as biosolids. The term biosolids and sewer sludge are often used interchangeably. And with this um, on the uh, on the page in the the pie chart, what it shows is the different ways in which this uh, biosolids can be used. Um, and I noticed that there are 31% of it is used for agriculture. 24% uh, is used for, um, uh, for like, as it says, golf courses, personal, uh, personal use, like at home or in 
golf courses and such, there's 24%, uh, well, total 27% that is going into landfill, um, which includes monofill. And then there's also 16% that it goes into incineration. Um, and I think part of the reason I wanted to show this is just because it's with this fertilizer that we produce and we get, it's not just going towards our food. We have to think about it going into uh, landfills, it, how it's going into, if it's incinerating, what is the area around those incineration plants look like? Are there people who are living in proximity? And if so, what are the long-term health effects of that? I think the issue is, is it's the, lack of foresight and the, the short-term effects of rapid growth and industrialization is that people are doing it to think, how can we get rid of this? How can we get this out of the way without actually thinking about what is this going to be doing to the environment? What is this going to be doing to the people around these areas? What's it going to be doing to the people who eat the food, breathe the air, and drink the water? Yeah, long-term effects. That generational mindset's important. Um, when it comes down to this stuff, I think uh, that's honestly, it should be the main highlight, right? Like sustainability at the end of the day, that's that's the dream. Having a system that's able to sustain. Um, it's having a society that's able to succeed, like, it correlates. It, you can only succeed if your environment's stable. And if if your society's in an unstable environment, um, it's, you're going to struggle with that. Now, obviously, history tells there's been various times where uh, unstable environments have affected the, the food stores, and uh, sometimes it's weather-related, you know, it these things hit in waves and, and being prepared, being knowledgeable about how to handle certain situations, especially with, with how farming works. Just the basics of knowing how to plant a seed is important. You know, that's, that's the first place you have to start. So um, it can be all scientific all day, but, but getting, uh, getting connected and knowing your roots, um, where your food comes from truly like at the genetic level understanding how that stuff works what grows in your climate having a few seeds just in case that's something that's common with a lot of people having a little store of uh, seeds and seed bank um not not a bad idea truly no having a seed bank is actually really important for genetic diversification because if there ever came a time where uh, you ended up with an incredibly uh, an incredibly bad crop disease and all of a certain type of a crop was wiped out without any form of a backup crop or anything like that, you would just end up with a blight. Um, like corn has had it, potatoes have had it, uh, bananas obviously being one of the more recent ones. Um, where it's just you end up absolutely decimating crops and you just can't grow them because the disease will rip through them and the disease will mutate faster than you can make a new species of corn or a new species of banana. And you'll just end up losing a, an entire crop species or speciation list um, just because of disease, because of poor management. So without seed banks, like I, I would say seed banks are more than just a little bit important. I would say they are honestly vital because if there ever comes an issue where we just had mass crop blight, and we had no seed reserves, we would starve. Yeah. Well, and honestly, I think um, this is a great segue towards our next segment. If um, if there's any other points that wanted to be added, I think this is a really good dive on our at least first good chunk. I... Yeah, I just have one more thing to add um, in terms of 
like how corporations are misdirecting us on on what the actual issues are. Yeah, I didn't I don't know if you wanted deep to, onto it. Um, I figured yeah, we could start with that on the next one. Oh, I mean, this just relates back to uh, what what Jeff was saying earlier in terms of like ruining the soil and everything else. Um, it's just uh, carbon emissions is always the big thing. You know, carbon taxes, carbon emissions, and all this nonsense. Carbon is a part of our atmosphere, absolutely, but it's zero point zero four percent. Uh, what that works out to is 451 parts per million. Actually, I think it's lower. That's uh, 417 parts per million is what that article is going to tell you. Plant death occurs at 150 parts per million. Just just for fun fact, plant death. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the things that photosynthesize oxygen that we require to breathe, to live our entire lives around. Um, most animals on our planet require it, in fact. And fish photosynthesize it. Or photo, fish, sorry, uh hydrosynthesize hydrosynthesize um taking oxygen from the water and expelling carbon dioxide um plant death is 150 parts per million we're talking about about a difference of 0.02 percent you're not going to gain uh massive spikes in earth's temperature based on carbon Uh, um there's a small correlation but typically it's it's actually much different oxides like methanes, uh, heavy metal gases, um, other things like that, aerosols, things like that. They're, they're just, those do not disperse in the air well. But CO2, the fact that we're taxing people based on carbon emissions and things like that is insane. The fact that mm-hmm. we're pushing a carbon agenda is insane. Mm-hmm. Like literally the, the correlation between temperature and, and carbon has never been adequately linked. Never. And we're still trying to curb carbon emissions as if plants don't flourish when they're literally given excess amounts of carbon. But, oh, if there's some more plants, there's more forest fires. Yeah. And if there's more forest fires, there's more freaking plants because they just grow back better. And the fire produces carbon. CO2. Yep. It's almost like I learned the carbon cycle in like sixth or seventh grade. And yet as a society, we haven't figured out that carbon is not the bad guy. And there are much bigger problems that we need to focus on. Not to mention all of it burning, all the ash goes into all those nutrients deposit into the soil that just reassures more growth. Yeah. The ash produces nitrogen. Which yep. is uh, which facilitates uh, growth? Sorry, <laughs> nitrates. I was gonna say it produces nitrates, which facilitate growth in the soil. Yes, yeah, which yeah, is nitrogen. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> which I think then gets onto the if I might jump in is the it's the the parallel between back in the twenties when the Forest Service was first created by um, uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Um, his administration, as well as the Forest Service at that time, put a huge emphasis on stopping forest fires. And with that, then, you had that buildup of all that fuel and such. And now from that, I think we're starting to see, in this time period specifically, the effects of all that buildup. Because including with droughts and, um, you know, ch- you know, changing weather patterns and stuff, it's now making it not only a lot harder to be able to control these things, but now that the extent of the fires is going so far out. I have an update and on the it is good. Benjamin. Huh? Huh? I, the, the fires, 90% of them have been man-made. Man, man-started fires. They're not natural. Precisely. And it's, it's for me, at least it's on the in-between of like, we need to promote new, new undergrowth, new life vegetation to revitalize those areas. But then it's also to the extent of at what point are we then going to be putting even more people at risk? Because seen the, we've seen the fallout from a lot of the huge fires here, specifically in California, Paradise, Dixie, um, there's been a bunch of them down in the near LA. All these things, it's good to, to revitalize the soil, but then we also have to think about what then are the 
media effects that we have to be able to work around and how are we going to be able to, um, if that does happen, it will happen again. If it does happen to where people are going to be displaced, we need to improve on systems to be able to get them back on their feet. We need to revitalize the soil, but also we need to also take care of people which I think that the, both the state and the government could be doing a much better job on. I got a, a point to that. Um, first of all, that the Forest Service now doesn't fight fires, it manages them. And sometimes they manage them right through communities. Um, they, they could take action, but they stand back now that because the, the mission has changed for them. The other thing back to the um, CO2, there are commercial greenhouses that buy CO2 generators to increase CO2 amounts up to a thousand parts per million. That's 0.10 when they're complaining about 0.01 increases detrimental to the world. We could go up in CO2 remarkably. And if it warms the planet, then more things are going to grow because plants like warm places they don't grow I was gonna say, it's almost like the amazon rainforest is one of the warmest and most moist places on the entire planet mm-hmm. it's almost like the warmer it gets the more the oceans evaporate and create condensation to water the vegetation that it's trying right. to create right and, the, and it's the almost thing like about our amazon. whole society wants to go to the freaking tropics too vacations for everybody so what's wrong with global warming then (laughs) well well uh well how are we going to sell a green society if we don't have global warming and here's the thing i love green energy i love green energy it's a great thing renewable sustainable energy is going to push us into interstellar travel and it'll push us beyond our limits of scientific knowledge right now but you know what We don't need to mine lithium-ion batteries to sell electric vehicles. It just doesn't make sense to me. Like, you're you're destroying the Earth to get batteries to drive cars instead of just building better bulk transportation systems. Like, let's refine the car a million times instead of just realizing that the car doesn't freaking work. Well, before before we get further in the point, I just wanted to make a quick um, correction to my point. Uh, the ash produces calcium, not nitrogen. Calcium. No, sorry, calcium just, inside of the soil reacts and creates nitrates. Yes, it would have it would have bothered me if I didn't correct that. So I had to. And it raises pH. Clarify. Please don't hate me, botanists. Yes, I'm and done. it raises pH. Correct. Yes, yes. Uh, it, it helps with um, if you have pine pine trees and stuff and making ash. So if you want to generate clean electricity, you should burn that biosludge instead of putting it in the cropland. It's, it's poisoning farmland. It's poisoning food. The plants uptake the pharmaceuticals, the heavy metals, pass it down the food chain to us. They're selling bags of biosludge that people put in their own gardens, and they, they don't say anything on the, on the label. Half the people don't even read the label. And they'll dump this stuff on their veggies, and it, and they don't know they're yes. poisoning themselves. And it's and it's sad that our country, they don't do this in other countries. They just do it here. And it's a there's a reason why they're selling the bio sludge to the farmers to put on farmland is because they're making money off of it instead of spending money to either burn it or put it in a landfill. It's 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 generating dollars for them. The company's yeah. bottom line is money. It is not the health of you or me. It's dollars. 100%. That's their goal is to make more and more dollars, no matter what they do. Um, Matthew had a point earlier. I don't want to dismiss that. Um, what did I, you like to the only The only thing I was going to say that was in my mind was that they've, uh, they've already done studies that uh, they um, pulled from different algaes and they found out that the uh, algaes were adapting to the CO2 levels and actually were consuming more. And it kind of, I think Cactus said something about like, you know, CO2 plants flourish on it. So 
it's kind of counterproductive to go away from that. And it's like, there's, there's studies out there that they've pointed out where it's like, I mean, even if there is an excess amount in that area, the, um, the plants will accommodate. The environment accommodates. Yeah. Whether it be algae bloom. Yeah. hundred percent. Uh, if, if I might, Matthew, I, I 100% agree that, um, that, that it doesn't make sense to worry about CO2 when our society, the plant life will always compensate. Our planet is incredibly adaptive. And when we talk about, um, when we talk about extinction, we talk about uh, the planet dying. Kevin said it best, I believe it was two episodes ago. Um, I'll reference back and, and find out. But Kevin mentioned that the earth will be fine. The earth will still be here. Whether we die from nuclear fallout, it, it wouldn't matter because the earth itself will recover. As short of literally destroying the earth's gravitational field and its, its core, the earth would be fine. It will eventually bloom new algae and the algae will eventually create new life and there will be micro life and eventually life will start again. It, our planet is incredibly, incredibly impressive in its level of adaptation. It's humans that need to learn to adapt to the same level as the planet. And our lack of foresight, as I mentioned earlier in the chat, is, uh, is pretty profound, honestly, that we're so ignorant to the consequences and the potential consequences of all of our actions. We rarely assume that there will be negative consequences and we just do things. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a very true statement. And it's you know, although things may change and and adapt with with the environments, it's it's really up to us to not overextend um those ecological environments um you know mass hunting is still the thing that that haunts uh modern history i mean it's there's plenty of animals around the uh, days of antiquity and medieval period that are just gone you know they they were common common threat then and now in certain regions are just disappeared and that's uh that's unfortunately the the trial and error of evolution so to speak um you know there's there's a factor of survivability and these environments have affected the way things decide to adapt I mean, rattlesnakes, I don't know if you guys have heard about this, but um, rattlesnakes have started to drop their rattles. Um, it's like it was kind of a thing around Oregon for a bit. And then there's a place in Texas, like down there, where they're all starting to drop their rattles. So there's a real-life example of something that's adapting in front of our eyes uh, to its environment. I mean, they know that they're being hunted. And at this point, they know that the rattle is less of a defense mechanism and more of a target. Smart. Those snakes are very smart. I was actually, I was actually wondering about that um, because that's a natural ability of a rattlesnake is to, is to shed the rattle. I was just wondering if, um, they're like if they're shedding it later in their life or if there are just more of them are being born without a rattle like is it um, a genetic modification or is it part genetic of it, evolution part of it is genetic because they're they're mating with bull snakes and things like that okay um, but so the, they're just diversifying the speciation from from what I understand and again this part is kind of hearsay but I I want to look more into it um I do know around central Oregon though, the bull snake thing I've heard from locals um, and multiple locals, but there's in Texas, I guess 
just slews of rattlesnakes um, all over that are dropping their rattles, Hormones. which is definitely yeah. uh, terrifying. <laughs> See, our, our 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 culture is failing because the the societal norm now of the mu- musical rope is you know they're giving up on their their musical maracas. I mean, come on, man. Okay, I'm, I'm just being, I'm, I'm making a joke. But... <laughs> can clip it's, that a, it's, a, it's a cultural issue. The, the, the rattlesnakes are not embracing their musical heritage. It just, it's, it's honestly, I'm sick of rattlesnakes not being more musical. I agree, yeah. Matthew. Yeah, you know, like, rattlesnakes uh, need to embrace their rattle culture. Yeah, it's, it's sad that they're, they're dropping their, their music of, of the maraca. Cameron looks like he's doing intense research right now. Looks like he's studying for the SATs. I I had to fact check myself because I I was curious. I wanted to debunk this, and this is something I just keep forgetting to check. It is so around here. Yes, the bull snake, um, rattlesnake thing is a thing, but it seems like the rattlesnake thing is is maybe an urban urban legend. Which is it's a little disappointing. I thought I thought Texas had something crazy going on down there. I heard this this last month, and uh, yeah, I I don't know. I, it looks like maybe the bull snake seems more convincing here. I could see that genetically altering how uh, how they adapt. But I digress. Just being, perhaps being more willing to mate with the bull snake in in more recent years. That'd be an interesting thing to study or, or at least look into. Yeah, from what I understand, it's really, really a select area too, which is the odd thing. Um, it's, it's like this home is like valley area. They just, they're happy in that area, I guess. <laughs> interesting. But something, something to look into in the future. I, I'd love to talk more on animals, but I digress again. I think this is a great wrap for our first segment here. Thank you for joining us for another intellectual adventure. I hope you'll join us next week. That's right, next week, where we increase our publishing schedule from a bi-weekly to a weekly basis. We've trimmed down the length of our episodes to make it a little bit more digestible for you, the viewer, and we hope it makes your viewing experience much more pleasant. Any comments or feedback you have about the quality of the episodes, the discussions talked about there within, or anything else, we're happy to hear. And give us your feedback on things you'd like to see more of from the Intellectual Adventure Podcast. Now, I hope you've enjoyed our time today, and I can't wait to take another intellectual adventure with you next week. Bye for now.